So would you bow in prayer with me, please? Father God, thank you for your kindness, for your grace, your goodness. Thank you for your mercies, which are new every morning, mercies we need every morning. We want to commit this day to you, Father, asking that it continues to be a day in which your people minister to one another, one another as they have already in their groups, that we edify one another in love and in truth and in spirit as we read and discuss your word together in this next hour. Thank you that underneath us are your everlasting arms, that you are our rock, our defender, our fortress. I ask that you would give your people security, that we would be delivered from fear. For as Christ spoke peace to his first century followers, he also speaks peace to us today and how we need it. May we truly rest in him, knowing that the passages of Scripture that we're going to be discussing this morning were just as designed for this flock here today as for that flock back then. We ask that this be an hour of joy for your people, and may our praise for your Son be sincere and genuine. May we all depart from this place knowing that indeed your Son has been lifted up, and has drawn us closer to him. I ask too, Father, that you would deliver us from ourselves, from dependence on ourselves, and our own thoughts, and our own biases, or anything, or anyone that we have made our hope other than Christ. And if there happens to be someone yet in unbelief or, or resistance to the convicting work of your spirit, May today be the day that she is brought from darkness into the kingdom of your everlasting light. Now go before us, for we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Just beginning with Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. And then we'll go over to John, but starting at Luke 24, verse 36. It says, And as they thus spake. Who is that? The two Emmaus disciples who had returned, okay? As they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat it before them. All right, that's where we're going to stop today. Now let's go over to John, chapter 20, and read verses 19 to 23. It says, Then the same day at evening. Now what day would that still be? Resurrection Sunday. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Remember, Luke told us the hands and the feet. And here John adds the fact that he also showed them his side where he had been pierced through with that spear, the Roman spear. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. I may forget to say this later on in the message, but those are two different words in the Greek for send and sent. And it's very interesting because the first one where he said, My Father hath sent me, is one that speaks of all authority. He sent his Son. The Father sent the Son with all authority. The second, and that's the word apostolo, where we get the word apostle. 
as my father apostolo me with all authority. The second one where he says, so send I you, that's another word in Greek. It's pempo, and it means um, dispatched messenger, not with all authority, but a dispatched, you know, so again, Christ is getting the preeminence. He was sent with a higher authority than he sends us. Out. And of course, we still have his, his authority, but we're more messengers, and he was like the sovereign sent from the sovereign. I don't know if you understand me, but there is a difference there. We don't see it in English, do we? Looks like it's the same word, but it isn't. All right, so he said, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit or forgive, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, probably reading through that, you could tell there's a few difficult passages in there, right? At least they look like they're difficult at first. Well, when Cleopas and the unnamed disciple arrived back in Jerusalem from Emmaus late Sunday night after their encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. They went directly to the place where they knew the, other, the apostles and other disciples would be assembled. They knew where that was, uh, probably the upper room, but they went there so that they could share what? Their good news, that they had just encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus. It is commonly suggested that the place where they were assembled was the upper room where the Lord's Supper had taken place just a few nights previous, you know, the night of the Lord's arrest. Because this is where the, the believers are assembled in Acts one thirteen. This is uh, right before the Lord's ascension, they were in that upper room. So it probably was the same room. Not that that matters, does it? doesn't really matter. But when the two were let into the locked room, and we do know from what we read that the room was barred, it was shut, it was locked. When they were let in, and I don't know if they had a secret knock, you know, how they, you know, how they knew who to let in, or if somebody was downstairs watching, you know, to see who who would go into the room. I, I even thought about this, probably crazy, but my mind gets going, and I thought, well, maybe that's why Thomas wasn't there. <laughs> Because he was downstairs saying, uh, okay, you can go. You know, I know you. And then uh, that's just speculation. But there was some, some way they knew that they could let these disciples in. And however, before they could even speak their good news, what were they greeted with? They were all excited to say, you know, we just encountered the Lord and ran back here. But before they could even share that, they were greeted with everyone telling them that the Lord was risen indeed and he had appeared to who? Peter. To Simon Peter. Luke twenty four thirty four. Now, it could be, I got to thinking about this too. It could be that Jesus appeared to Peter while the two were en route back to Jerusalem. You know, I said his appearance to Peter was the third post-resurrection appearance. But if you get to thinking about it, it was a two-hour walk to Emmaus, right? And then they encountered the Lord and suddenly he vanished from them. And it would probably take them two hours, maybe an hour and a half to get back to Jerusalem. Maybe when the Lord vanished, that's when he appeared to Peter. So you see what I'm saying? It could be we said one is the third appearance and one is the fourth. It could be the other way around, that he could have appeared to Peter. And Peter got there before the two Emmaus disciples and told everybody, and they were all excited. So when the two Emmaus disciples, you know, it's all fresh, they said he just appeared to Peter. I don't know. Um, but we do know he appeared to both of them, Peter and the two Emmaus disciples. Well, as we discussed several weeks ago, we do not know the details of Peter, Peter's encounter, do we? We don't know anything about it because the Spirit of God neither allowed him or any other New Testament writer to record the circumstances of that encounter. Paul told us that the Lord did meet with Peter, but we don't know the circumstances. Now think about this. Can you imagine <clears throat> being the leader of a group and bragging as the leader, bragging that although everyone else might scatter from the master, yet not you. You know, they all might scatter, Lord, but not me. Remember when the Lord said, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. What, what is that essentially saying? It's saying that, well, I'm better than the rest of them, right? I'm better than they are because I won't do that. But then you do something 
that nobody else does, and it's even worse than scattering. What do you do? You go ahead and deny even knowing the Lord three times. Um, And now everybody knows about it. Peter definitely was taken down a notch or two, wasn't he? I wonder, too, if some of the other people in that room may have thought that Peter was at it again. You know, saying that he had seen the Lord when none of the other apostles had. Do you think that might have been going through their heads? Remember, we know that they had some jealousy problems about who who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Maybe when Peter came in and, I have seen the Lord, you know, he made it, maybe he didn't say it like that. Maybe he was a little more humble. <laughs> but maybe they didn't believe him. Oh, this is just Peter trying to brag again. This is all speculation. I can't be dogmatic about it, but... Anyway, so after hearing about Peter's encounter, the two Emmaus disciples shared, we are told, what things were done in the way, on their way to Emmaus, and how they knew that their traveling teaching companion was the Lord when he did what? Broke the bread and passed it to them, maybe seeing the nail prints in his hands. And I would think, too, that they included in their report that the minute they knew who he was, what happened? He vanished. He made himself invisible. He vanished into thin air. So the testimony of Christ resurrected was confirmed by these two as it had been by Mary Magdalene, as it had been by the other Galilean women who had also seen him, and by Peter. Now, remember, John has not yet seen the resurrected Lord. Nonetheless, he believes. What does he believe based on? That was bad English, but he believes in the resurrection based on the empty grave clothes in, in the empty tomb. So you would think, you would think that by now, every one of the Lord's followers in Jerusalem would have confidence that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. But is that the case? We have a lot of people now coming and giving the same report. So you'd think they'd all believe, but that's not the case at all. We didn't get to Mark sixteen thirteen in the lecture part of our last lesson last week because I ran out of time, but I'm sure if you read your lesson, you did read about it. And this is regarding the report from the two returned Emmaus disciples. And it said, Mark said, and they went and told it unto the residue. (laughs) It's kind of a funny term. And then what? Neither believed they them. When they went and reported it to the the other disciples and the apostles in the upper room, they didn't believe them. Now, wouldn't you think that those who had already seen Jesus would believe these two? I would. But maybe when they, in their report, said that Jesus appeared in another form, the others had doubts that it really was the Lord. Now, Mary Magdalene may have understood the other form bit of information because initially she thought Jesus was someone else too, right? She thought that he was the cemetery gardener. But the other women, the other Galilean women, when they saw Jesus, they knew him instantly, didn't they? Instantly. And they fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Which apparently Peter did as well. I don't know. Probably Peter knew him as soon as he saw him, but maybe not. But John never saw him. So I don't know exactly who believed the report, but it does seem... I'm talking about the report of the Emmaus disciples. It does seem that the majority position was very skeptical that Jesus had actually risen bodily. That the report of these two sounded more like a spirit, you know, both from the other form thing where they didn't know who he was and then from the vanishing instantly. You know, that sounds kind of like a spirit. So maybe they thought, you know, well, they saw a spirit. We mentioned this before, but the Jews believed that the spirit of the deceased hung around the body, kind of like a helicopter, on earth for three days before it departed into the spiritual world. So maybe the residue here that Mark tells us about, maybe they believed that their friends just saw Jesus' spirit as he was getting ready for his third day departure. But not that they had seen a bodily 
resurrected Jesus. Are you following me? So there was apparently division in the room. I am sure that if the women, if the Galilean women were in the room when the two Emmaus disciples came back, that they probably believed their report because they believed, and I'm sure probably Mary Magdalene did too after her, you know, (laughs) Mary and Rabboni thing. But there was obviously still um, those that didn't believe. And it was, the division was regarding the exact nature of the supposed resurrection of Jesus. Was it just his spirit or was he indeed resurrected bodily? Now, I want to stop for a minute and ask you a question, all right? How many of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many of them contain post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus? How many would say one? How many would say two of them? Two? You're going for two? How many would say three of them? Okay. Now, how many would say all four of them? How many didn't vote? (laughs) I think most of you didn't raise your hand. And some of you are like... (laughs) All four of them. All four of them give us post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) Think about this, lady. What are they called? The four Gospels? (laughs) They could not be called gospels without a resurrection. What does the gospel consist of? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The the gospel is good news, (laughs) and it would not be good news if Jesus just died and stayed that way. You have to have a resurrection if they are to be gospels. And this, I'm telling you this, because this is um, important for those who, and there are plenty of people, and you can pick up commentaries and they'll say this. There are people who say that Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 should not be in the Bible. But if you stop with Mark 16, 8, you don't have any post-resurrection appearances of Christ. You just have angels saying, he's not here, he's risen. But anybody could eventually over the centuries say, well, that was just some women seeing some angels and who can trust that? You have to have post-resurrection appearances. Well, when we put together the four gospel accounts, we find that there are 130 verses from the Sunday morning activities at the tomb to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some whole books in the Bible don't even have that many verses, 130 verses. And then if you add the 160 verses on the resurrection that are found in the New Testament epistles... There are almost 300 verses that um, talk about the resurrection. Plus, then you have the whole book of Revelation. It's not an epistle. We we don't call it an epistle. The book of Revelation is all about the resurrected Savior. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, because we are told that we must believe in our, in order to be saved, we must believe in our heart that God hath raised Christ from the dead to be saved. If Jesus did not raise bodily from the dead, then our faith, as Paul says in Corinthians, is utterly in vain. For since he would, he said, he himself, Jesus said that he would raise back his temple, meaning his body, in three days. If he didn't raise back his body in three days, he's a liar. He couldn't keep his predictions. Therefore, he is not our Lord and Savior, and we are still dead in our sins. That's why the resurrection is so important. Well, before the Lord's appearance in this upper room, which is his fifth post-resurrection appearance, before his appearance, there was something else in the room besides division. Some believing the Emmaus report and some not. So there's division in the room, but there's something else going on in that room. There was fear, fear in the room. John 20, 19 describes the scene of the gathered believers that Sunday evening This way, he says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, and that in the Greek means barred, they were locked, where the disciples were assembled for what? Fear of the Jews. By this time, this is late Sunday evening, and by Jewish time, it would really be Monday morning. 
But all of a sudden, there's a big change, and now it's on Christian time. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday, right? Everything changed. So their time, this is early Monday morning, but the Bible is calling it the first day of the week, Sunday. All right, so they're there. It's late, and by this time, we know that everyone in that room has heard the false report being spread by the soldiers who had stood guard at the tomb, who had been richly bribed, of course, by the Jewish chief priests. And what was that false report that they were bribed to spread? It was that the disciples had stolen the Lord's body while the soldiers were sleeping. (laughs) Such a crazy thing. But anyway, the apostles had obviously heard that. And they would know that or figure that there was a warrant out for their arrest. There really wasn't, but they would think that there there would have been if the Jews, you know, really believed that they had stolen the, by, their, the body, but they didn't really believe it. So there was no warrant out for their arrest, but they didn't know that. And many people, of course, in Jerusalem would be easily able to identify the apostles. Remember when he rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey? And all the multitudes were around. They knew what Jesus looked like. He'd been in Jerusalem many times. They knew what his disciples looked like. So they could have easily been picked out. So they're hiding. They're hiding their faces in this upper room. And they're gathered behind closed, locked, barred doors because of their fear of the Jews. Even their conversation probably was carried out in low tones, you know, maybe whispering or or murmuring. So we find then that the atmosphere in that room was tense. It was tense with not only division, some believing, some not believing, but it was also tense with fear, as well as a high level of excitement. You have to admit there's going to be excitement in that room because some know they definitely have seen the Lord. There is a strong mixture of definite faith, potential hope, and impossible probability. Something interesting to think about is that the uh, shocking event that took place next, which was, of course, the sudden appearance of the Lord in the midst of them, that may have happened at the exact moment that the two Emmaus disciples were describing how Jesus had just vanished from their sight. I mean, that would be a good time for an entrance, wouldn't it? As we do know, because the scripture tells us in uh, 24, Luke 24, 36, that the event happened while those two Emmaus disciples were yet speaking. And that's the end of their story, isn't it? So just maybe they're finishing up their account. And they said, you know, when he broke the bread and we knew who he was, he disappeared. And then just as they say that, he appeared, <laughs> made himself visible right there. In the, oh, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Mm. So regardless what they were saying at the moment, The sudden appearance of Jesus standing there in the midst certainly confirmed the sudden vanishing part of their story, right? (laughs) You know that instantly, when that happened, there he is. Instantly, all conversation must have ceased. I imagine that everybody was frozen in place, right? You know, jaws dropped open. Their fear of the Jews was suddenly replaced by another overriding fear, There was a new presence in the room. And it tells us they were terrified and affrighted. Have you ever been affrighted? (laughs) Since the Lord's arrest, these folks have been on pins and needles, haven't they? And the events of the past three days have moved them through every conceivable emotion. I mean, they've just been like roller coasters. And of course, then, the sudden appearance of someone suddenly standing in your midst in a locked room, you know, without the door opening, (laughs) no big hole in the wall being punched, and suddenly there's someone right there in your presence, that would scare anybody, wouldn't it? My husband does this to me all the time. (laughs) I'm in the kitchen, you know, at the kitchen sink, washing dishes or something, and all of a sudden, (laughs) there he he is in the midst of me, you know, I didn't hear him coming, and I screamed so loud that he screams back as I scare him. <laughs> One day, we're both going to be there. You know, you'll just find us dead. With, you know, <laughs> so the sudden appearance of somebody in the room would scare anybody. But if you add the fact that these people were already very jumpy, 
<laughs> even before this jolting appearance, we can understand how, how they were so terrorized and affrighted. The one who suddenly made himself visible to them was, of course, the Lord. But they thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a ghost, which tells us that this was already on some of their minds, wasn't it? When they had heard the reports, they were thinking maybe it's his spirit. And, you know, people have been talking about angels and angels are spirits. So they've been thinking a lot about spirits, the spirit world. But the Lord, of course, is omniscient and he knew their minds. He knew what they were thinking. He knows all about the individual varied emotions and the overriding atmosphere of fear in every one of those people in that room. And he is going to deal with all of that. As the good shepherd, he knows the mental state of every one, uh, every member of his flock. And every heart is different, right? Some of us are like Thomas, we're really skeptical. Some believe right away, you know, anything they're told, they're maybe a little bit too gullible. And, but we all have different mental states. And, and that's why he deals with everyone differently. He ministered to Mary Magdalene one way. He ministered and appeared to the Galilean women another way, and then to Peter a different way, privately, uh, and to the Emmaus disciples yet another. And now to all of them, from their midst, he says, the words I so badly need to hear this morning, peace, peace be unto you. And he asked, remember how he always asks questions? Go through all his post-resurrection appearances and see all the questions he asks, one question after another. He says here, why asks, I should say, why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? He knows what they're thinking. You're doubting. You're thinking, I'm a spirit. He knew exactly what they were thinking as always. He knew their troubled hearts and he knew their doubts. And so the first words before his gathered disciples and his apostles, less of course Thomas, he's not there. His first words are words of peace. And isn't it interesting that peace was also the very last thing he spoke to his apostles. On the night of his arrest, remember he started out the farewell discourse, John chapter 14 and 15, then they left the room, and he, as they're going to the um, Mount of Olives, he speaks the contents of, of John chapter 16. It's all called the farewell discourse. And what are the last words in that discourse before he then prays to his father, John 17, the high priestly prayer? The last words are these. He says, these things... And here he's referring to the whole discourse. This is at the end of John 16, verse 33. These things refers to John 14, 15, and 16. He says, these things I have <clears throat> spoken unto you that in me ye might have what? Peace. So the last thing he ever said to his men before he went to the cross, you know, he was arrested and went to the cross, were words about peace. He says, in the world ye will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So last words, the first words about peace. And peace was exactly what they needed. Just as the Lord had dealt with grief, Mary weeping, you know, and, and he, had, he had dealt with doubt, and uh, he had dealt with misunderstanding of the scripture with the Emmaus disciples, and he had dealt with Peter's sin. So he's dealt with grief and doubt and misunderstanding of scripture and sin. Now he deals with fear. When he said, peace be unto you, he is not giving some kind of uh, formal greeting like the Jewish people do in, in Israel today when they say shalom. You know, when they see each other, like we say hi, they say shalom, peace. He's not, you know, the Lord doesn't ever waste words. He's not just giving a formal greeting like, like we say, how are you? And if you're going to say, how are you, stick around to hear how they are. <laughs> You know how we do that? Hi, how are you? And then you keep walking. <laughs> you don't even, I don't really want to know, but how are you? Uh, he knew here. I mean, he's speaking peace for a reason. And we know this because he repeats it twice. Look at verse 19 and again in 21. He knew that these people needed rest in their spirits. Now, this reminds me of another time when the disciples had been apart briefly from Jesus. And they were full of anxiety and fear 
when they thought that they all were surely going to drown in the storm-tossed Sea of Galilee. Remember that? And then suddenly, their great fear of the storm was replaced by a new fear because they saw what they supposed was a spirit walking out toward them on top of the billowing waves of the storm. Now, don't ever get the picture. I know picture books have Jesus walking on smooth water. He was coming out to them in the middle of a storm, <laughs> wind, and, you know, and they're, they're um, fishermen. They know all about storms, but they're afraid for their lives. This was quite a storm. He's walking on top of big waves and in wind, and they see him, and they think he's a spirit. They thought he was probably the spirit of death coming to get them. <laughs> And we are told that they were very troubled. It reminds me of this scene here. Uh, but, of course, it wasn't a spirit. It was the Lord. And do you remember what the first words out of his mouth were then? They were words of cheer and comfort. He said, be of good cheer, guys. Don't worry about it. It is I. Be not afraid. And then, as we discussed, the night of the Passover supper, when the disciples were also very anxious and very fearful, especially after he had given them all the predictions about that he would be betrayed by one of them, that, they would, that he would be arrested and suffer and die, and he talked about their own defection from him, that they would all scatter, and he told Peter that he would even deny him. So they were all anxious that night, and then he had like, likewise spoken words to comfort and cheer them. That's what John 14 is all about. It's the comfort chapter of the Bible. He was trying to comfort them. Let not your heart be troubled. He said, peace I leave with you. It is expedient for you that I go away so that I can send you the comforter. Talk, you know, giving them peace and comfort. And now again, likely in that very same room that he had spoken those words, let not your heart be troubled, he brings them comfort and cheer. Peace be unto you. Another question. What do you think God's will is for your spirit? Isn't the Lord Jesus called the Prince of Peace? Now, I'm really preaching to myself today. <laughs> uh, do you think that he wants your spirit to be in turmoil or tranquility? If he's the Prince of Peace, what does he want for your spirit? Tranquility. Well, we know based on who he is and we know why he came to earth that it is, is his will for the spirits of all men, all men, to be at rest. Really, the only thing that would be worthy of throwing a believer into an absolute paralysis of anxiety and fear would be if there was no living Lord, right? People always want to know, what is God's will for my life? You ever wonder that? I've had many women ask me, how do I know what God's will for my life is? Well, here it is, <laughs> real simple, at least one of them. All of his will is pretty simple, but one of, it, one of his will pieces is that you be at rest in your spirit that you settle down in his sovereignty, that you be at peace with him. First of all, we need the peace of God, right? A peace with God at salvation. Make our peace with God by being saved. And then we need peace of God, that peace that passes all understanding. Didn't the Lord say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And then he went on and said, Learn of me. Learn of me and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Let his peace calm your heart. How does God expect us to react to life's trials? He expects us to be at peace. He expects that in nothing should you be full of anxiety, but in everything by a right approach of what? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we come to God uh, with our prayer requests. You come to where God's peace governs your heart. Now, I feel like a, almost like a hypocrite saying all that. And I, <laughs> because I didn't sleep yes, last night at all. I kept reciting all these verses. 
And I read through this lesson over and over again, and I did finally get that peace that passes all understanding, but I still couldn't go fall asleep. Our little two-year-old uh, two granddaughter, Juliet Faith. Um, remember, it's so ironic that I've been talking about hallucinations lately. Well, my daughter called me yesterday morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, woke me up, and uh, I, there was just screaming. And I could barely hear my daughter, and she said, pray for Juliet. She's just crazy. She she came in my room at 4 o'clock, and she's just hallucinating. She's, you know, she's only two, so she can't communicate really well, but it was like she was seeing, she kept saying, bugs, bugs, and she was picking at herself like she saw bugs uh, climbing all over her or something. And my daughter stripped her down, and she felt a little bit of a fever, and my daughter is a nurse, so she, you know, thought maybe she just got a sudden fever, and that's what was happening, but... She couldn't calm her down and went on for several hours, and so she called her husband, and he came running home from work, and he worked that night. And uh, they went to the emergency room, and I got a phone call during Sunday school, and then after church I got another phone call, and she said they're going to do an MRI and a CAT scan and um, lab tests and all this kind of thing. But she was just always in the background and screaming, and it was just, and I said, do, should I come? You know, I'll cancel Bible study. I'll get in the car. It takes me five hours to get there. I'll be there in four. <laughs> And I said, please let me know. Well, then I didn't hear. That was like 2.30 the last time I heard yesterday afternoon. And I waited and waited and I couldn't get her. And I hate cell phones sometimes because I couldn't get her husband and I couldn't get her. And I knew they were in the hospital. And, you know, your mind goes wild and you're just thinking all the worst. And and it, I never heard from them all night. And I texted and texted and texted and never got any answers. And, you know, you're battling the peace that passes all understanding and yet the worry. Okay, I give it the worry to the Lord and then I take it back. And, you know, we've all been there, right? And then on top of that, I got a phone call from my son about 11 o'clock. And he said, uh, well, I texted him and said, please pray for Juliet. And, I, and then he called me and he said, well, pray for me while you're at it because I'm take, I have a five-hour flight and in the middle of the night, in a plane that he's only flown once. My my son is with the Navy SEALs. He's a fighter pilot, but he's with the Navy SEALs, go figure. But everything he does is, you know, so. Then I had that on top of it, and then the water came rushing in the house this morning. And so, if anybody needs peace, I need a little bit of that peace. But <clears throat> anyhow, it is possible. It is possible. Please pray for Juliet. They're going to run another MRI today, and... Um, she's out of the pain, but she's still really sensitive. She doesn't want anybody to touch her. And, you know, she's had several eye surgeries. So, I, you know, I'm thinking, could there be? But they said they, said they, they canceled out brain tumor. But I don't know. Anyway, she's in the Lord's hands. So after speaking words of peace, the Lord then showed his followers. He said, it is I myself. <laughs> he showed them um, that it was him by inviting them to behold what? His hands and his feet, uh, and then we learn from John, to his side. Why do you think he didn't say to his followers, look at my eyes? Same eyes, same shape, same color. Look at my eyes. Look at my features. Hey, mother, do you think his mother was in that room? Mary? Yeah, probably, because she had gone with John. Her sister Salome is there. I'm sure Mary was there. Why didn't he say, mother, tell them it's me, I, myself? Why did he say to look at his hands and his feet and his side? Well, it is obvious because these are the marks of his suffering. These are the trophies of his redemptive atoning work for you and I. And they are still there, healed but visible. Jesus invited them to see and touch his crucifixion wounds to discover for themselves that he was the same Jesus who had died by crucifixion, and been buried. And now he was in a material body. A spiritual but material body. But a body outside the limitations of time, space, and matter. Which is an interesting thing to look at and discuss because that's the kind of body we're going to have. He said, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. He's condescending. He could have just commanded them, believe it. I'm God, believe it. But he condescends to appeal to their senses. Handle me, you know, touch, see. And then he says something interesting. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Did you know 
that we are, when we get our resurrected bodies, going to have flesh and bone bodies? Have you thought about that? Maybe no blood. I don't know. I was trying to go there with my thinking process, but I couldn't figure all that out. But, but definitely flesh and bone bodies. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So does that mean the death of the flesh is in the blood? Not in the... Anyway, if you can figure that out, I don't, I don't know if we'll have blood. Probably not. But we're going to have material resurrected bodies. But they're not going to be limited by time, space, and matter. Can God do that? Yes, he can do that. We'll be able to make ourselves visible and invisible and travel fast, just like the Lord did from Emmaus to Jerusalem. Now, wouldn't you think that these words right here that Jesus himself spoke, he says, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Wouldn't that settle it right there and then for every person who says that Jesus did not rise bodily? Don't you think that would settle it? If they believe the, the Lord Jesus, it should settle it. Do you know that the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes again, he's going to come in like manner as he went away? Acts 1.11. He went away with a body marked with the wounds from his crucifixion. Some people say, is there going to be anything man-made in heaven? Yes, the nail prints on the Lord's body. John said that in chapter 5 of Revelation, he testified to seeing in heaven a lamb as if it had just been slain. There in heaven, the Lord still gives evidence of what he did for us. Those are his trophy wounds. And they're going to continue to be there throughout eternity, reminding us of what it cost him to redeem us. And that's one difference, I think, between his body and ours. I don't think our bodies are going to contain any scars from this life. But his body will always have the scars of the crucifixion to remind us of what it cost him. And so he's as a lamb as if it had just been slain. And yet that slain lamb is also a glorious royal monarch. In that same chapter of Revelation 5, a lamb slain, but the lion from the tribe of Judah who will consume all of his enemies with what? Just the sword of his word. I have news for you. Jesus is coming back bodily for his body. That makes sense, doesn't it? The bridegroom is coming back for his bride. And it is going to be literal and it is going to be real. It's not going to be some spiritual, allegorical, metaphorical, pie-in-the-sky kind of a thing, which many churches teach. It's just something spiritual. I got to thinking, why do so many people not believe in the literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ? A lot of people don't teach in the rapture or in the, the return of Christ at his second coming. Well, I think, I got to thinking about that, I thought, well, maybe it's because they don't believe in his literal resurrection, bodily resurrection. If you believe that he only rose in spirit, then you're also probably going to tend to believe that his return will simply be some kind of a spiritual thing, not a literal king, flesh and bone, material body king, who comes back to reign on a literal throne in a literal Jerusalem on this literal earth. Well, think about this. Instead of filling them with peace and comfort, the Lord Jesus in his first ro resurrection appearance to his men, men could have blamed them. Instead of saying peace and then, you know, showing them his, that it's really him and to comfort them, he could have blamed them, Right? He could have said, you guys deserted me at my greatest hour of need. Therefore, I'm not going to use you. I'm going to go find some other apostles and some other disciples. He could have blamed them. He could have also uh, scolded them. He could have called them fools <laughs> and slow of heart. Um, he could have taught them something deep to really straighten them out on their lack of spiritual understanding. He could have done that, right? Well, he does. He actually does. He does both of those things. He does scold them, 
And then he goes on and also teaches them. In Luke 24, verses 44 and 45, we won't get that to that for quite a while, but we find that he also taught them the scripture as he did with the two Emmaus disciples. He taught them from the Old Testament all the things concerning himself. He did teach them, and he did scold them. And we found that in Mark 16, 14. You know, it wouldn't really be fair if he called the two Emmaus disciples fools and slow of heart, and he didn't say that for his own men. That wouldn't be fair, right? So he does scold them. It says that he actually upbraids them for their disbelief and hardness of heart. This is Mark 16:14. Did I tell you that? He scolds them. Um, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So he did scold them for not believing all the reports of those who said they saw him risen from the dead. He scolded them for their disbelief and their hardness of heart. So you can have a slow of heart and you can have a hard heart. (laughs) It's the best thing, though, to have a burning heart, isn't it? But he didn't do those things first. He didn't scold them first, and he didn't teach them first. Those are important. But the first thing he does in his fifth post-resurrection appearance was to speak words of peace to their hearts. He was gracious, wasn't he? Isn't five? This is his fifth post-resurrection appearance. This is still Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And five is the number of grace. He was so gracious. He graciously cheered them up by proving to them it was him, the same Jesus, alive from the dead. Luke twenty four forty one tells us that after the Lord showed them his crucifixion wounds, and this is an interesting expression, it says, they yet believed not for joy and wondered. Now, when you read that, do you get a little upset with these people? <laughs> they yet believed not? For joy. You think, what in the world is it going to take for these people to finally believe that Jesus rose bodily from, from the dead? But really, that verse doesn't mean what it initially sounds like. It's an expression, and it's very similar to us saying, it's just too good to be true. They yet believe not for joy and wondered. This expression means that the disciples gathered in that room, seeing Jesus suddenly appear in their midst and beholding his crucifixion wounds, were so absolutely overjoyed that they rebounded to the opposite extreme, the opposite extreme of disbelief. Now they could not believe for the joy of believing. You get it? (laughs) So much ecstasy filled them with new hope that they were a little bit scared to really believe it. It was just downright too good to be true. I mean, how could this really be him in his once dead body and yet now alive physically before us? But he quickly, very quickly assured them that it was indeed wondrously true and their joy could just spill out over the top. (laughs) What did he do to further assure them of his physical presence? What did he do next? He shows them his wounds, and then he asks them for a piece. If they have any meat, he asks uh, for some food, and he ate a piece of broiled fish and a piece of honeycomb right there in their presence. You see, being all-knowing, the Lord Jesus knew that where two or three are gathered in his name, their food will be in the midst of them. (laughs) he asked for food and he ate it right in front of them why did he do that was he hungry do you think he was hungry i mean he'd been through a lot he just walked to jerusalem and back (laughs) no he didn't walk he whatever he did to get there but um do you think he was hungry are we going to be hungry in in our new physical body in our new spiritual bodies our spiritual physical (laughs) incorruptible bodies You think we're going to be hungry? No. We're going to eat because we like the taste of food. That's why we eat now, isn't it? (laughs) The good news is that we can eat 
in our new glorified bodies. That is good news, isn't it? I would hate to give up eating. <laughs> but he ate. Uh, and, and he didn't eat because he was hungry. The reason he ate before his people was so that their faith in his bodily resurrection would be utterly grounded. Because I live, ye shall live also. How will we live also? When we see him, we will be like him, right? We will live in a resurrected material body. How did Job know that? Job, the book of Job. Talk about a guy needing peace, right? (laughs) Do you know he was pre-Mosaic? He lived before Moses. There was no Bible when Job lived. He lived at the time of the patriarchs. And yet he said these words. He said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. Oh, he knew about Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman, didn't he? Job said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Is that a literal second coming of the Lord Jesus? (laughs) And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whoa. What is that except a bodily resurrection? Job believed in a literal bodily resurrection. First guy to ever write anything. Job precedes Moses. That's amazing. How do you think he knew that? He got it from Adam and Seth and Enoch and, you know, down through the patriarchs. They passed it along to one another. What had seemed too good to be true was fully realized by these believers in this room. And there was a huge transformation. You better believe it. In the atmosphere of that room. No more reason to fear the Jews. No more doubt. No more disbelief. No more tears. No more despair. No more disappointment. No more need to fear death or the grave. John gives us the understatement of the centuries when he says, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Is that not an understatement? I imagine they were doing a dance like David did before the ark. This is exciting. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. I bet so. And you know what, my dear sisters in Christ? One day when you see the Lord Jesus Christ, I guarantee you, you are going to be glad. And I am going to be glad. Well, I wonder if any of the apostles remember the Lord's words to them on the night of his arrest when he had said, this is also part of that farewell discourse, he had said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament but the world shall rejoice. Did the world rejoice when Jesus was crucified? Yes. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned to what? To joy. And he said, I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Jesus was alive. Everything changed in a moment for these guys. Come what may, nothing could ever, ever separate them from the love of Christ. Not angel, not life or death or angels or principalities or things present or things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other creature including themselves could ever separate them from the love of Christ Jesus, right? Nothing can separate us. And they all, they, they gave their lives. All the apostles gave their lives for this truth. They knew what they saw and they believed. And now, and there was one missing. He missed out on a lot, didn't he? He had to wait another whole week before he got all this joy. But now that he had dealt with their fear and their grief, both of which were caused by their disbelief, right? Their fear and their grief. They didn't need to have either one, did they? For God hath not given us a spirit of fear. This is one verse I kept saying last night. 
For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. They didn't have to have fear. They didn't have to have grief, did they? Both of those things were the result of their disbelief in his literal words and their misunderstanding of Scripture. But this is when the Lord again for the second time said to them, Peace be unto you, for now they truly could have peace. And here's something for us to think about. Even though there was nothing, nothing different about their immediate circumstances, there wasn't. Aren't they still in the upper room behind closed doors? They're still in that room. They're still hated by the Jews. They're still accused of having stolen the Lord's body. They still thought they were in danger of being arrested and even possibly crucified. And yet, they don't really care anymore, do they? They don't care. Their hearts were in the clouds. And we had a burning heart one day and a cloudy heart the next, you know, up there. They're way above their circumstances. They had that peace that passes all understanding, that peace that is available for you and I as well. So the Lord's appearance was for the purpose, we find out next, of commissioning his disciples to a task set before them. That's what we find in John 20, verses 21 to 23. This room full of people was to be sent out with the assurance of the Lord's resurrection. And thus they had a message to spread, didn't they? Best message you could ever spread. He says to them, here's their mission, as my father has sent me, even so send I you. The Lord's people have a mission. You know, every one of us, if you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, we have a mission. It is the greatest mission in the world. We are to spread the good news about him. And this is not just a mission that was given to his apostles. And we know this because there's more than just his apostles in this room, right? Other believers are in this room. So this is for everyone who knows the Lord. Our mission also is not new. It's simply to do what he did. Of course, we can't atone for sin, but we can deal with sin. And we can see sinners come to faith in him and receive salvation. We are to deal. This This is our mission. You get upset when you watch the news, do you? And see what's going on in the world? Our mission is to deal with the gross evil that is cursing men's lives, children's lives, young people's lives. Haven't you felt the awful weight of the world's evil? And the sad thing is, you know, it's so full of evil and wickedness. And, and we would wonder, don't you wonder, how can, how can it get any worse? It's going to get worse. When the church is out of here and the Holy Spirit does no longer restrain evil, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Hard to even imagine, but it's going to get worse. But our commission as Christians is to deal with the sin problem one person at a time. As Jesus went through the nation of Israel proclaiming peace and rest to the weary and heavy laden, what are we to do? We are to go out into the world with the message of the gospel. He is the way, the truth, and the life, isn't he? We are to point the way to people. We are to proclaim the truth to people, and we are to share the life with people. These disciples were not to think that just because the Lord had conquered sin and death that there was nothing left for them to do. If that was the case... He would just take all of us home to heaven as soon as we're saved, right? If we didn't have a mission, he'd just take us home. On the contrary, their work was just beginning, wasn't it? Their work is just, was just beginning. He was about to leave, and they were to take his place. Wow, you talk about a big task. And that's what we're to do. We're to be Christ's light to the world, aren't we? And salt. Where do we get the power to do this? From the Holy Spirit. And that's what he did next. When he said <clears throat> when he said this, and what is he talking about when he said this? When he said, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. When he had said that, it says, he breathed on them and saith unto them,
receive ye the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, anybody got some questions about that one? (laughs) (laughs) Y'all. There are different views on this. Some say that this was just a symbolic gesture. Now, this is, it's not very helpful to look at the Greek word where it says he breathed on that, them. Now, that's the Greek word pnevmate, breath, like wind or spirit. It's where we get the word pneumonia. It starts with a P, pnevmate. Um, and unfortunately, this is the only use of this word here in the New Testament. So we can't look at another passage to get help. There is another place, however, in the Bible that uses this word, which is translated from the Hebrew into the Greek and the Septuagint using the same word. And that is when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. When he, when he formed Adam and breathed into him, Adam received spiritual life, didn't he? Physical life and spiritual life. You know, since Adam's fall, no one had had the spirit born with the spiritual life. These guys are the first ones. Now that the gospel is completed, he now breathes in them spiritual life. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon people, but he never indwelt them because they were only temporarily being cleansed and the Holy Spirit couldn't dwell in an unclean temple that was only covered. Now that Jesus had atoned for their sins and completely cleansed them, he could live in them in the Holy Spirit. So... <clears throat> Some say, however, that this was just a symbolic gesture that Jesus breathed on them. Um, And this was a gesture that looked forward to the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell them. Right? You get that? Some say it's just a gesture. Others say that this was when these believers were actually indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And those who disagree with that use Acts 1.5, where the Lord, you know, right before his ascension, the Lord told his apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit, um, which ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So right before he ascended, 40 days later from this, He said, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So if they were baptized with the Holy Spirit on Resurrection Sunday night here in the upper room, then why would he tell them to stick around in Jerusalem for the baptizing of the Holy Spirit? Now, that's a good argument, isn't it? Did you follow me? That's a good argument. Then on the other hand, there are the literal direct words of the Lord here in our text. John 20, verse 22 He said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, ye will receive the Holy Spirit. And I looked it up, and he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. So that makes it kind of difficult, doesn't it? Two solutions are possible here. Number one, he may have breathed on them the Holy Spirit, which would be, like the Old Testament saints. You know, here, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell them, but he came upon them to empower them and anoint them for the special works of God and the special words of God that they would need to declare and say and do for the next 50 days until the day of Pentecost when they were then indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Yeah, that's a possibility. Another solution, they may have received from Christ, actually received from him, like he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. They may have actually received from Christ the indwelling Holy Spirit on Resurrection Sunday. But on the day of Pentecost, they, when they were gathered together with all the other believers in Christ there in Jerusalem, were baptized by the Spirit into the body of, of Christ, the church. The church came into existence on the day of Pentecost. So if you want to ask me which one I I go with, I don't know. I don't know. That's a very difficult passage. 
Well, the final recorded words of Jesus in his fifth and final post-resurrection appearance on Resurrection Sunday are given to us by John. He says, Whosoever sins ye remit or forgive, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, when you consider that verse, and I'm almost done, it's important to consider it in light of its setting. This was not something, again, that the Lord spoke only to his apostles. Remember, there's other believers in this room. Jesus was not giving the apostles or even this select group of believers the privilege and authority to forgive sins or not to forgive sins. No person can arbitrarily absolve another person from sin. Not even God does that arbitrarily. He could, but he doesn't. He says, I'll I'll absolve you of your sins if you believe in my son and his death, burial, and resurrection. No one but God can forgive sins, right? If, if one of you come to me and say, I, 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 have, I have sinned, Mother Catherine. <laughs> I was trying to think what to call myself. <laughs> I had trouble even saying, I have sinned. And I say, okay, my dear little one, I forgive you. You are absolved of your sins. And I say that and then heaven forgives you. No one but God can forgive sins. That's why they accused Jesus of claiming to be God because he said, your sins are forgiven you. The forgiveness of sins is only made possible by one's faith in the shed blood and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his or her sins. Nowhere in the book of Acts or in any New Testament epistle is there even a single case of an apostle or even a disciple of Christ remitting the sins of anyone. What we do, however, find is them going everywhere preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. Followers of the Lord are not authorized or empowered to provide forgiveness. We are the proclaimers of forgiveness. You see the difference? (laughs) We can't provide forgiveness. My word, how ridiculous. But are there priests? that think they have that kind of power, that's dangerous to give somebody that kind of power. But we can proclaim forgiveness. When a person believes the gospel message, when they repent of their sins, when they put their trust in Jesus Christ, then the witnessing Christian can say, your sins are forgiven based on the authority of God's word. That's what his word says. Repent and ye shall be saved. They're proclaiming what heaven has already done. They don't proclaim it first and then heaven does it. So the Lord's words here are for all genuine believers who serve him in the power of his spirit using the gospel message. It doesn't make any difference how high or humble their position. It is through every one of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior that he desires to reach out to the world with his saving message. Who does the saving work? He does. The Holy Spirit does. We don't. We're merely instruments, right, through which he speaks the truth of God's word. All right. Two weeks in a row. 1230. Maybe one minute. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel and for the power of Jesus Christ to save. We ask that you would turn our hearts entirely to him not only today, but every day of our lives, and away from any lesser vain hope. We pray that nobody, nobody would leave here trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. I ask that you would indeed use these women this week in their mission as ambassadors to spread the gospel, help them to be salt and light with everyone they come into contact. For we pray in your name. Amen.